Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Way. Back with you guys for another episode of our Press Box series. Where I'm joined by a couple of our colleagues from over at Football.London. I'm joined by Chris Wheatley. How do you, mate? Are you well? Good, Tom. Thanks for having me again. No problem at all. Kaya, always a pleasure. Sir, I was going to say sir. That was so polite. Ooh, I'll take a sir. <laughs> I'll take a sir. Yeah, that's all right. Chris yeah, is getting I'm, jealous now. I'm, going to very start. Jealous, I'm very jealous. Up. I'm only going to respond if you refer to me as sir for the rest of the episode. <laughs> well, when I was I'll a teacher be, uh... for three years, I got bored of the word sir. So, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we are, of course, here to, to bring you all of the guys' thoughts and feelings around our most recent fixture. And I was going to say look ahead to the next one, but it's there's going to be a couple of press boxes before our next uh, Arsenal game, unfortunately, because it is now the international break. Thankfully, um, the last international break until March. What I am going to do to kick off the show is ask that, and I haven't prepped them for this, actually, so this might be unfair. Uh, but Kaya, sir, if I could ask you for your best tip to get through the international break as a club football fan, what would it be? Ooh. As a club football fan in general, I'd say, uh, A, read everything that comes out on London because that's a great way to pass the time. Oh, and uh, so good. <laughs> B... Who's paying you to say that? <laughs> well, football.london. Oh, well, yeah. um, B, I'd say, I'd say just... Um, I think Arsenal are quite good at releasing any sort of video content. And I, obviously, we're going to talk about, I think, a little bit today, but there's the Arsenal Wenger documentary coming up for Arsenal fans. So I'd say go out and watch mm. that because... Um, think it's going to be pretty good. Chris, same question. Did Kai steal any of your answers or have you got anything different? Um, yeah, Kai stole all my answers. Uh, <laughs> I would say as well, that Wenger documentary, actually, I, I watched it last night. I finished it a bit earlier. It's fantastic. Um, would yeah. highly recommend it. So get yourself down to uh, the cinema, if it's out in the cinema. Um, mm. However you can watch it, just try and watch it. It's fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, what I, I would say is that you can uh, go and watch the youth team that are doing very, very well at the moment. Uh, and the women's team as well. I've got a game this weekend, so there's still Arsenal going on as well. But I mean, the boys are very engrossed in the men's actually, game I, right now. I can't believe I didn't mention them. That's, that's really boring <laughs> me. I'm, I'm going to be. I'm probably going to be covering some under twenty three games as well. Oh, I mean, so based off the back of the last performance, mate, you're going to be treated uh, yeah. because that yeah. that three goal return quite a quite a performance. At the end, following Balogun popping up, of course, with a brilliant goal that I know, Chris, you retweeted to your timeline. It's uh, quite a strike from the young man. Um, so fingers crossed we might see him in the coming months. But of course, we are here to talk about Arsenal's 1-0 win over Watford. Uh, Chris, we'll start with you, mate. What was your kind of reaction to, to the victory and, and how did you find the game overall? Yeah, it was a, a fantastic game. And uh, I think what, we, what we've learned about Arsenal over the past few months is that they're starting to grind out results, even um, when maybe the performances aren't showing that they can... Uh, do do enough in these kind of games. I think against Watford, Watford are a team who um, pose a different sort of threat to to other teams in the league. And they have a new manager who uh, had a good moan at full time as well. I think we all noticed. I'm sure we can speak about that. Um, but yeah, look, as I said, look, Arsenal are grinding out grinding out results. Um, I think they deserved the win in the end. Uh, Watford didn't really offer too much of a threat in the game, but. Um, yeah, I think the, the biggest highlight was Ranieri at full time, um, having a good old moan at Mikel Arteta. 
There you go. I think it's uh, <laughs> it was one of those games where you can see the the Arteta routers kind of creeping back in and going, oh, I'm not sure we won that comfortably enough uh, <laughs> coming out there. But it was for me. Again, one of those displays, Kaya, where we had plenty of chances to win it. We didn't quite take them. Penalties, goals that were stolen from people, <laughs> Bamiang in particular, uh, falling foul of a few of those. But what did you make of the game overall, mate? I thought... I'd... I get why the scoreline wasn't convincing enough for people, but I thought it was a pretty convincing win, actually. I thought mm. Watford didn't really pose Arsenal too many threats. I can't really think of a chance they had, apart from maybe Anne Ramsdale's little um, Fabianski moment towards the end where he's raced out of goal completely. Well, he gave Josh King a completely open goal and he missed it. But aside from that, I don't really remember Watford causing Arsenal too many problems. And those kind of games when you're a young side, Arsenal obviously the youngest side in the league, um, when you have a goal ruled out, when you have a penalty missed, when you have another goal ruled out, those kind of games are the games where it can be difficult to get a win, particularly just the Emirates was getting increasingly nervous throughout. You just got the feeling that it was going to be one of those days. I actually tweeted at half time. It just it mm. felt like it might be one of those days. And we as Arsenal observers and fans and journalists and whatever have seen a lot of days with Arsenal where if not managed to get the goal, Early on, they've started to get a bit nervous. They've kept building, 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 but not actually created a direct opportunity. And then, obviously, they end up going and losing despite dominating possession. But Arsenal came away with the three points. It wasn't the prettiest of wins, but it felt pretty convincing to me just because I think, obviously, on another day, if, like you said, if Bamiang isn't offside, Arsenal win that 2-0 quite comfortably with the Erdegaard goal. Bamiang scores his penalty. It's 3-0. He takes his chance in front of goal instead of giving a poor touch straight to Bukayo Saka. That's four. I know it's, it's like maybe, but... That's the kind of thing where Arsenal should confidently be coming away from that with a very sort of happy feeling from the job they did. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We talk about Aubameyang, and I think that's probably a good kind of place to go on to next. Uh, it's Aubameyang's game is always going to be something that we measure up to what we've previously come to experience from him, which is a very, very lethal striker that's been up there. And I think he is in the top 10 goal scorers of strikers of the last decade. So he is always going to be held up there in such high esteem. So when he has these patches, I say patches, it's gone on for a little bit now, kind of the inconsistencies about his game. And now successively missing two penalties. Of course, he did put one away after it was saved by Amy Martinez. But we're just looking at the uh, the statistics, Chris. Four out of the, the last 13 penalties have been missed. Um, and we know that there are other players that are currently starting, like Alexandre Lacazette, that has a very good penalty record. Arteta came out afterwards in the press conference and defended Aubameyang and said that you're going to miss penalties when you take them. Do you think it's it's right? Or do you think there should be a level of accountability and say there are people challenging him for that spot and Lacazette is one of them. Well, look, Tom, a little birdie tells me that uh, Aubameyang has a 64.3% conversion rate in the league. Uh, (laughs) Lacazette and and Nicola Pepe, 100%. So, look, penalties, as we know, are kind of potluck. I remember watching your... um, your challenge with uh, Bailey on the oh, YouTube channel. You didn't did that. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I was admin in this uh, stream yard, then I would add the video right now, but unfortunately I can't. Um, I would recommend everyone uh, watches that after this. Please uh, don't. Um, but as we know, penalties are absolute potluck. Um, you can obviously work on them in training, but you know, in the games, they're completely different, um, especially when it's in front of 60,000 fans. And, Aubameyang is still, for me, one of the best strikers in Europe. Okay, maybe his penalty rate is not great, um, but you know what you're going to get with him. Um, And I think it's just a confidence thing. 
um, probably had in the back of his mind that miss against Villa. Um, I know he scored the rebound, but, you know, it was a miss, wasn't it, really? Um, so, yeah, look, I think it's something that he clearly needs to improve on. Mikel Arteta said after the game that he's going to work on it uh, with Aubameyang. Um, and I think maybe it's time for another penalty taker to step up. And I think uh, Alexander Lacazette could be, could be the man to do that. Um, but there's plenty of other good penalty takers in the team. Martin Odegaard is certainly one of them. Kyle, the striker situation in general is is becoming increasingly talked about, um, especially considering two of our strikers in Ketia and Lacazette have their contracts expire at the end of the season. Following Balogun, a young guy that's just signed his deal, signed it on the basis that he was hoping to get more first-team opportunities as well, and Aubameyang's contract will be on a year left at the end of this season. We're also seeing links with strikers uh, emerging out of the woodwork ahead of the January window. Do you think that kind of the form of a Bamiyang could see maybe Arsenal's plans to sign a striker, which we, you know, we're expectant that that is going to be a position they look towards in the summer. But do you think the form of, of the current crop of strikers could lead them to accelerate those plans to, to a winter move? Personally, no, I don't think so. I think um, what was interesting, because there was the, that Josh Kroenke interview over the weekend, and the interesting thing I noted from it was he said, they've done a lot of work on the squad, but they're not done in the summer so it, it would mm. seem that if you know if you're looking at areas to strengthen maybe central midfield definitely center forward in the long run those need to be done so I get the feeling that's going to be addressed and that's sort of on the to-do list but I'd be very surprised Arsenal have shown in the summer that they're, they're all about getting good value so they're willing to pay the money for the players but they tend to want the value for it so I don't see that many strikers who are available for a price that Arsenal would A be able to afford or B deem acceptable in the January transfer window and I think with players like but Balogun coming through, I know Eddie Nketiah is likely to leave and I know uh, Alex Lacazette will be leaving at the end of the season. But players like Flo Balogun coming through, Aubameyang is still, we forget, I mean, I think his record is still pretty good. I think he's still one and two for the season. So he's still doing pretty well, uh, even if he's not having the best games. I know we spoke about those high standards that we hold him to. But I'd be very surprised if Arsenal do go for a striker in January just because of the amounts they have on their books right now. I've not even mentioned Gabriel Martinelli um, in the centre-forward conversation as well. So... Mm doesn't quite make sense to me the shoe doesn't quite fit but I think in the summer that's something we could definitely keep an eye on because I think in the summer Arthur will go big for a striker I've seen the name Dusan Blajevic linked personally just from a statistical profile I've not been that convinced by him I don't know if that's blasphemy to say out loud because Arsenal fans seem very excited by him but there's, there's strikers like that and there are players out there but I don't think they'll be available in January I think the summer is far more likely for a centre forward to come in than Arsenal well, if you are like Connor and not convinced uh, about Dusan Vlajevic, then do make sure you tune in a little bit later on this week onto the channel because I'll be having a chat with Rich Hall from Football Italia all about Dusan Vlajevic. So uh, maybe, Kaya, you'll have your mind changed by the end of the week. Chris, I'd be averse if I didn't get your thoughts on the transfer line about uh, the striker situation. These links to specifically Dusan Vlaovic have arisen. Um, Demarcio, of course, reporting that story that Arsenal would be willing to pay the, the, the 80 million euro demanded figure, but that Vlaovic himself would be more willing to wait until the summer for a bigger offer, as it was put. What do you make about those stories in particular? Um, well, I think firstly, Demarcio is one of the best journalists in the world. And, I, you know, whatever he says, um, you've got to certainly take note of it. But I think with with these links in particular, the January transfer window is coming up. It's normal um, to have these kind of players linked with Arsenal and other top European clubs. Um, and I think that is probably 
what I would say. Um, it seems to me more agent talk, similar to the Ruben Neves um, reports in the summer. We know that mm. Arsenal like him. He was on the shortlist, but there was never any approach. Um, and he's a George Mendes player. So we know that these players who are kind of uh, upcoming in Europe and um, the agents want to try and get their name touted around, it's pretty normal to put Arsenal's name in there because Arsenal have a lot of money to spend. Um, but yeah, I do think, like Kaya said, Arsenal will be in the market for a striker in, in the summer, if not in January. But uh, I think they've got other priorities at the moment. Uh, I think finding loan clubs maybe for someone like following Balogun, who is, as you said, Tom, playing fantastically in the under-23s, but he shouldn't be playing there. He should be um, out somewhere else in the championship uh, learning his trade there. So uh, we'll see. I think there's a lot of work to be done in the next uh, few months. Moving away from the striking position, the man of the match of the game was, of course, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, uh, who I was... I'll be very honest. When I saw the lineup announced, you don't see Thomas Partey there. You worry. It's quite natural to be worried when Thomas Partey's not in the team, especially considering I think it was Maitland-Niles' second start in the Premier League since all season. So there is always going to be that apprehension around someone filling in for someone of the quality of Partey. But Kaya... He was great, and it was almost like we didn't really miss anywhere near as much as Partez as what I thought we might have done. And for a player that isn't getting too many regular minutes and has had his issues towards the end of the summer window with uh, obviously the plea to leave for the famous Instagram story, were you as equally surprised the performance, or has he proven in the past that he's capable of these displays? Good question. I don't know if surprise is the word because I feel like I remember AZ Maitland-Niles doing quite well in central midfield in a few games for Arsenal. I wasn't that impressed um, from what I saw from him at West Brom, but that was difficult circumstances. It wasn't a great West Brom team and they didn't really stand too much of a chance of survival in the Premier League. But I think he did a, a decent job out on loan. There was nothing to suggest that he's ready to start for Arsenal, but he seems to have, I guess, um, by a little bit of luck, he seems to have sort of found his way into becoming a central midfield option for Arsenal. Obviously, Danny Ceballos didn't work out. Um, Xhaka now has his, his long-term injury. So, he's Maitland-Niles is next in line and that means he has to be ready. And I think the criticism of Maitland-Niles has always been that sometimes not focused enough, he's not always switched on enough. But I think for someone who isn't always a guaranteed starter at Arsenal, for him to come in and put in performance like that when he wouldn't really have been expecting to start in the week. Obviously, I, we don't know when Partey's injury came through. Sure, he would have known about it um, as early as anyone else. But relatively late in the day, they found out that Ainsley Maitland-Niles was going to be starting that match. So I think it's um, a big step up from him in terms of concentration. And Mikel Artes said after the game, he's a changed player in terms of his attitude. That's really encouraging to hear. And I think Maitland-Niles, I'd love to see him um, kick on and really cement himself a place in the team for us. I don't quite see it happening just because I think Samuel Lukong is ahead of him. I think Mikel Arteta is a big fan of Granit Xhaka and obviously Thomas Partey will start if he's fit. But there's definitely a role for Enzi Mittenars to play. I can't see him leaving in January at this point, contrary to those rumours. I think he'll stay till the end of the season. Maybe they'll talk about a move in the summer. But I think he's he's applied himself really well, which is something we didn't necessarily think was the case in Mittenars. I think the criticism of him was always maybe professionalism, attitude, but He's shown with these performances, the one against Leeds before that, that he's someone who is capable of stepping in and someone who is willing to play his part this season. And that's going to be an important part given the African Cup of Nations coming up in January. 
Mm. I mean, yeah, we're going to lose Partey and, and El Nini, of course, during that period. And Chris, if there's one thing that we know that Mikel Arteta likes as a player that's willing to put in the effort and, and turn things around for themselves, we've seen them offer contracts to players that I know surprised the fan base. Granite Xhaka was one in particular. We've heard that he wants Eddie and Ketia to stay. We heard that whether or not that will actually materialise is, is another thing. But just hearing that from Arteta shows that he's willing to give opportunity to players that maybe a lot of people have written off. Do you think that there's... Any possibility that Maitland-Niles will receive a contract offer from the club? Yeah, I mean, I think it shows how things change so fast in football. I mean, like you say, with that Instagram post or story a couple of months ago, uh, it looked like he was going to leave on deadline day. And now he's turning, turning in fantastic performances for the club. But like Kaya said, I think we always know that Maitland-Niles has that quality. I remember that performance against, was it Valencia a couple of years ago? Um, yeah. Where... He made a fantastic assist for uh, Aubameyang, from what I remember. But, you know, Maitland-Niles is one of these players who's clearly been changed under Mikel Arteta. And I think, you know, I heard from certain people last year in particular that maybe Mikel Arteta's man management wasn't as good as uh, it could have been. Maybe it's one of his weaknesses. Um, but you have to say this is an example of where his man management man management has been fantastic because Maitland-Niles seems to be a changed player and judging from what Arteta is saying his attitude is now different as well so you've got to give credit to Arteta and of course Maitland-Niles as well um, for changing his mind and or changing the way he he's behaving I think that's um, that's a good sign as well that Arteta is certainly uh, improving on that aspect of his management. It's a position on the field now where we've got a lot of, of competition through the signings that we've made, through Thomas Partey, of course, coming in, Sambi Lakonga. We're looking like that's going to be a position that we continue to target in the in the coming windows. You've got some real quality youth players in Patino, Salah, Akinola, of course, as well, coming through the ranks. It, it would seem to me that Maitland-Niles, if I was him from a neutral point of view, would think, look, if I want to play regularly at the top, top level, it's probably not going to happen at Arsenal. And even if the club were to offer, say, a contract, would it be in his best interest to sign it? And I'm not sure that it necessarily would do from a neutral, unbiased standpoint. So it, it will be intriguing how that develops over the coming months. Uh, and especially when the, the African Cup of Nations hits and we do lose Partey and El Nenny again, and he will likely get more opportunities in the team, uh, especially if we continue on in, in the League Cup and get past Sunderland because then we'd have those two legs in, in January too and that will be the start of the FA Cup uh, period as well. So lots of, of chances during that winter festive run. Now, besides the game, which of course was great and uh, being three points off of second place despite losing 5-0 to Manchester City three games into the season is, is quite unbelievable. Um, the One of the big highlights of the weekend, uh, and it was something that I, I certainly wanted to get your guys' thoughts about, was the interviews done with uh, director Josh Kroenke. I nearly say owner Josh Kroenke because it's it's like he is so much the face of the club, more so than his father, that it feels very much like he speaks from the position of an owner. And he says that his words are his father's, so it's effectively the same kind of role. Kaya, when you heard that the 25 minutes that he sat down with, with Jeff Shrees from Sky Sports to talk thoroughly, not just on a football level, but there was some social questions in there that I personally genuinely appreciate asking things like that. I remember famously when the, I think it was the Manchester United takeover by Sky was going on and there was a reporter that asked during that press conference who Man United's left back was at the time and they couldn't answer the question. So, I know that the, the line of questioning is sometimes to maybe try and find a little chink in the armour, but I thought Josh handled it quite well, the, the questions he was facing. And I know that 
he's and the, and the Cronky ownership is always going to be something that is a contentious situation amongst fans. But do you think that he and the decisions that are being made, say, in, in the club's level from the last 18 months are moving towards trying to re- repair that damage that has happened? Yeah, I think slowly but surely. <laughs> is the right uh, Yeah, is the kind of the yeah, answer I expected. It's a less than convinced yes, just because it's impossible to say right now because until these actions start, I'm sorry, until these words start to become actions, then they are mm. nothing more than words. And I think... Jamie Carragher actually said it quite well on the um, on Sky's coverage straight after, um, saying, "Yeah, until until we see actions, it doesn't really mean anything from Josh right now." I think I respect him for coming out and actually facing up to the um, criticism because his father's not done it in his entire time that he's been associated with the club, and I don't remember any other um, Premier League owners really coming out and doing an interview like that among the big six teams who were involved in the Super League fiasco. So fair play to him for that. I disagree with you in terms of how he handled those questions about the club and what position he would be. I thought he didn't come across like he knew that well. He seemed a bit panicked to me, but I think I I, I, I don't want to be too critical of him because I, I think steps are being made forward and I think the supporters advisory board is a good idea and I think the fact that there's meaningful dialogue is a good idea. What was most interesting to me is that he refused to comment on the idea of any sort of golden share or fan involvement on the board just because his sort of way of getting out of that question was, well, um, Tracy Crouch is the MP who's doing the report into that. Her report hasn't come out yet. So he basically said, I'm not going to answer until the full reports come out. That to me seemed like a sort of a polite rejection of the notion of any sort of fan representation at board level, which I, I think is, a little bit concerning. I wasn't a fan of the fact that when the Cronkies came in and took majority ownership, they decided to buy out all the fans because the fans didn't have a, a share that was able to actually do anything necessarily to stop the Cronkies doing what they wanted. But those annual general meetings, things like that were really important. And I feel like if he was worried about communicating with fans and having a fan voice, then he wouldn't have got rid of the AGMs and he wouldn't have got rid of any sort of fan ownership of the club at all. So that to me, I don't. I wasn't quite convinced by it. I will say that I think the idea that they're going to invest in the club and the idea that what was positive was he was saying investing in young players, building them together, building a squad is positive. And I think his willingness to stick with Mikel Arteta at the start of the season when I think a lot of uh, owners might not have done the same thing does deserve a bit of credit because it wasn't the easiest decision. I think it would have been an easy decision to sack Arteta off the back of that season, but he, he made a plan and he stuck with it and he's going to try and see it through. So fair play to that. I just don't necessarily think that when it comes to his interest in the club, his interest in football and his interest in meaningful dialogue with fans, not just sort of showing face, I mean, meaningful dialogue where it actually brings about change. I'm not fully convinced by what I saw from Kronky in that interview, but we'll have to see what comes from it, I think. Yeah, as always, it's always important and words can only take you so far and it will be the actions that are measured um, by the fan base. Chris, I want to get your thoughts, of course, on it as well. But in particular, something that we was picked up on was that he he really went hard in talking about how they've only really had full control over the club since when they bought out all of the fans and that we should kind of look to measure them based upon what happens from that point. He also talked about how we didn't want to be judged based off 48 hours of the Super League fiasco either. Do you think that 
that's fair of him to, to say that the 2018 is kind of the start point from where we should judge them from when they took over the club fully? Or is there anything else that we should be looking back past that and saying, well, we've regressed ever since 2007 when you first kind of got involved with the club. That's where we should measure you from. Sorry, I think Josh Cronky was just calling me there. Um, <laughs> no, Don't um, answer the question. <laughs> no, um, I mean, it's a really interesting comment. I thought the interview was, um, look, we, we know we, we can talk openly about how interviews and stuff work. I think it helps like fans and people watching. Like we know that uh, this was the perfect time for Josh Cronky to do an interview. You know, 10 games unbeaten now. Arsenal in fantastic form. They invested the most out of any team in Europe in the summer. Uh, I think I completely agree with Kaya when he says about the, you know, the fan advisory board. Let's be honest that there's no influence there. It's uh, again a very strategic move from Cronkit from the Cronkies and rec- recommended by those uh, in the club. Um, what I would say as well is, um, I think I, I saw your tweet a couple of days ago, Tom, um, about the fan advisory board. I think maybe it could be a bit more um, of a broader representation of the Arsenal fan base, maybe um, more women on the on the, on the the uh, yeah. fan advisory board. I think that was maybe a little bit disappointing. I, you know, I recognise a lot of the faces there and I think there's some great people on there as well. Tim Payton's fantastic. You know, the work he's been doing and the, what he did during the Super League was incredible. Um but look, we all, I think we want, we have this idealistic kind of dream that owners are going to be like diehard supporters of the clubs. And that's just not the case. You know, these are like hugely successful business people who buy football clubs in the first place, um, mostly because they want to make more money. Um, some use it as PR tools. Um, I think with with Kroenke, like, Maybe they're growing to love the club. Maybe I could say that. I think they've, they've certainly invested um, mm. in whatever way you want to say. They have shown ambition in the past couple of years, at least, um, with the transfers that have been made. So, yeah, I think Josh Kroenke is, is the main man now at Arsenal. That's pretty clear for all to see. Um, Tim Lewis is his man on the ground. Um, I think Arsenal's setup, executive setup, seems to be working um, at the moment. And I think... With Edu, Richard Garlic, Arteta, Murtasaka, everyone seems to be working in tandem. Tandem, um, and I think the signs are positive. But you know, we've had unbeaten runs in the past, as we said before, and um, we need to relax and uh, let's see how the next uh, couple of months go. But yeah, I think it's a good sign that Kroenke is at least speaking publicly and trying to open a bit of discourse with the fans. Just one more thing to add in there. Sorry, just on the. Um... The idea that the Kroenke should necessarily be praised for investing, and I, I mentioned it myself, but I feel the reason Arsenal need so much investment right now is because of the state that they were allowed to get to. So as much as it's great to see them investing in youth, and as much as it's great to see them having a successful transfer window as we saw this summer, signings like the six we saw come in over the summer transfer window were only needed because of how poorly the transfer markets were managed before by Arsenal. I think Josh Kroenke himself did say something along the lines of they didn't get everything correct post Arsene Wenger. It's refreshing to hear him admit that and be humble enough to admit that. But I think the idea that they took over in 2018, I don't fully buy that. I think a lot of the decline happened because they got too comfortable believing that qualifying for the Champions League and all the money that comes with that was enough for Arsenal. Mm. And I think the second they fell out of that, they sort of had quite a rude awakening that football is a very difficult business to sustain 
elite level status for a prolonged period of time. And that's why the job Arsene Wenger did deserves so much more credit looking back on it in retrospect, because it's, it's really hard to finish top four every single season. Chelsea, with all their millions and billions they spent under Roman Abramovich, haven't managed it. So it's not easy to do. And I think we should always temper any praise of investment in the club by the Cronkies now by the fact that they allowed it to get as bad as it did get towards the end of the Unai Emery era and towards the worst parts of the Mikel Arteta era. So just a little caveat to, to throw in there. Yeah, it's a good point well made. I mean, we remember when we talk about investment as well, it's it's investment of the club's money. Like it's it's not an injection from 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 KSE. It's it's what the clubs have made through their revenue and through their player sales. So it's it's always when that word investment gets kind of thrown around, it's it is always important. And I'm, yeah, it's good to to provide the caveat. Uh, there was an interesting question. Now I'm really on a, not an expert on this, and and if you two aren't either, don't, don't feel like you have to feel like, pretend that you are. But if you are, what level does a golden share actually cover? Does it veto player sales, or even just talk about the softness of toilet rolls? I struggle to see how you structure it if Josh ever agrees. I mean. Can either of you really comment on this, on what a golden share would look like at Arsenal? Okay. I'll, leave that to you. <laughs> no, I'll leave that to you. I'm not fully really sure. Sorry, I've just been distracted by some news that I'll bring up after Chris answers this okay. question. <laughs> no, to be honest, I can't say I'm an expert in, in the golden share. I think probably better, Tom, you, you're great at getting these experts on to cover these kind of topics. I think that'll be one for another day, but... Um, no, I, I wouldn't say I have much expertise in that area, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, I mean, as a day we're expected sometimes to be the experts and everything. It's something that we're going to need to look into and really learn about. And it's going to be something that we know is going to come into the forefront of, of our minds when talking about the ownership and especially with this, this these things that are going on behind the scenes politically too. Kaya, you wanted to bring something up. Go on. Yeah, Emil Smith-Rowe has just been called up to um, the senior squad for England. Oh, so, big wow. news, you breaking news. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, if we're all in the same room, we could have an Henri Jamie Carragher moment, but that's as close as it's going to get for us. <laughs> over Zoom. But yeah, um, that's, that's made me very happy. I'm, I'm delighted for him. I think he really deserves it. And as far as I can see from the statement England have put out, I just got the Twitter notification come through, but it doesn't seem like anyone's been dropped from the squad to make nice. him in there, if that makes sense. So. Oh, yeah, an update uh, with four players not reporting, so just ignore everything I just said. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's the way of live reporting. Great entertainment. Uh, Marcus Rashford, James Ward-Prowse, Mason Mount and Luke Shaw have not reported for his special duty, so Emil Smith-Rowe has been called up. I assume just him? Squad. Um, have they named in, anyone but, else? Uh, this is Man Reads Out. News report on screen. <laughs> oh, it's like it's live reporting. It's part of what it is, Kaya. So uh, we'll come back to you on that. I mean, Chris, thoughts on Smith Rowe being called up just in the last couple of minutes of the show? It's it's big for him. It's a massive bit of news for him. Massive, and I think he completely deserves it. You remember last season, Mikel Arteta was asked about Smith Rowe's performances, and he kind of challenged him to become one of the best creators in the Premier League he said if you want to become one of the the best you need to start scoring um, and assisting because his numbers just weren't high enough um, and he's added that to his game in the past few months and I think what I really like about Smith Rowe again we've spoken about it so much but personality um, he's clearly someone who loves the club and you can see that with the, his celebration after scoring every goal he goes absolutely uh, mental uh, which is great uh, to see and I think He's certainly another player that Arsenal fans can really connect with and be proud of. Proud of. 
Um, and I think this is fantastic news for him and his family. And yeah, fully deserved. Kyra, any updates? Listen, the Mason Mount is out due to dental surgery. That's what I've read. <laughs> uh, Luke Shaw's following concussion protocols. I don't know why Marcus Rashford is out, but I guess that's a sign that Emil Smith Rowe was next in the queue, if that makes sense, to, to mm. be in there. And it's a very competitive field, the attacking position for England right yeah. now. Conor Gallagher. Conor Gallagher didn't even make it. So plenty of players who are playing so well for England, and plenty of players who we know are such good players um, who really could have been around that England group. So to have made the call up is fantastic for Emil Smith-Rowe. And hopefully I'm, I'm looking at that San Marino game. I don't think he'll play against Albania just because slightly stronger opposition, but that San Marino game, I'm looking at that as a, a time where he could really get his full debut for um, England. And that'll be fantastic news mm. for him. No, I think James Sancho wasn't called up in place of yeah, any of those, yeah. which is... And uh, mentioned him. What I would say yeah. about that is um, I think given that Emil Smith-Rowe was already at St. George's Park with the under-21s, maybe that's why. I don't want to put a dampener on the parade. But we just have. Easier to put him. I know, I know, I know. I'm, I'm sorry. But listen, he deserves to be in the squad ahead of James Sancho on form anyway. So well done to him. And uh, every, I echo everything Chris has just said. A great moment for him and a great moment for his family. Absolutely. What a nice way to end today's press box show. Thank you ever so much, guys, for tuning in. So we had to go through you've many of your questions today. It's been a it's been a lot to talk about, but there will be more over the course of the international break. So do make sure that you are subscribed with those notifications turned on so you get told when we are going live. And you can follow us at the Arsenal Way N5 to find out when we're doing these shows. Kaya, thanks so much for coming on, mate. Really appreciate it. Tell people where they can find you and what you're going to be getting on with over the international break. Well, I imagine some some Emil Smith Rowe watch uh, after <laughs> after that news. But yeah, we've got um, some reaction to that Josh Conkey interview, a bit more in depth reaction to the Josh Conkey interview. Um, some stuff on the Arsene Wenger documentary, which is coming out. I think the premiere is tomorrow, and then the documentary is released on Thursday. So plenty of reaction to that, plenty more analysis. And yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Kaikantanik Seven, uh, Facebook, and the Football Runner website for everything else and all the other good stuff. Other stuff, Chris. Always a pleasure to have you on, mate. Let people know where they can find you and what you're going to be up to over the international break, too. Oh, I felt like you only asked me that question a couple of days ago. Um, so same answer, really. Um, a couple of interviews, hopefully coming up, um, and yeah, the same as Kaya. Usual work on on Football London, um, Football London. Visit the website now if you can, um, and read our work there. Absolutely. Uh, we will see you uh, later on this week. Well, I'll ask Chris the exact same question again and uh, <laughs> we'll see if it's involved anymore. Um, but please do drop a like on the video and subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. You can find myself at Tom Cantor Media and as I said already, at the Arsenal Way N5 as well. See you very, very soon and keep following us down the Arsenal Way.